Welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club, um, and in this episode, I will talk about the the novella, essentially a novel, uh, The Man Who Sold the Moon, uh, which was uh, published in 1950. Um, so this, normally with the novels, I'm doing two episodes, but I wasn't quite sure what to do with The Man Who Sold the Moon uh, because it is was published as a separate book. It wasn't published in a magazine or a uh, newspaper or something like that, like many other of the shorter works. Um, but it's not quite as long as the juveniles even. And, you know, I've been doing those, cutting them in half. I think The Man Who Sold the Moon is doable in one episode. And and in fact, I, I'll, I'll kind of treat it like I do the short stories. Um, now, I've read this like a little bit ago, and I did the audiobook for this. It's about four hours long. Um, and... I was really enthralled by it, but I've, I'm kind of a little ahead in my reading than my recording because I've kind of been consuming a lot of, of, of Heinlein lately. I'm already like through uh, Between Planets and, and on to the 1951 stuff. So um, it's been a while since I kind of looked at this. and I didn't even print this one out because um, I, I was printing out like the astounding stuff I was printing off of uh, archive.org. So, um, but that's, that's okay. I, I'm like, it's pretty clear in my mind what this novel is trying to, to do and say and why it's so good. Um, so anyways, I'll just um, try to jump into this to give you my thoughts about it. Now, first of all, this was, this is a future history story. Um, it's a, it's like an attempt to kind of write the history of of the story Requiem. Now, Requiem was a very, very short story, which he wrote back like in 1940 or 1939 or some way back early in his career. And it's just about a guy who had wanted to go to the moon, a rich man who'd wanted to go to the moon his whole life, had been integral in getting humanity to the moon, but had never actually been able to go. And then it's about him wanting to make a trip there and the behind the scenes shenanigans that prevented him from doing so. But he finally overcomes those and goes to the moon and dies there. Um, so that's a nice little self-contained story, but I, Heinlein must have, it must have been eating at him that there's like more to say to this. Uh, and what he says here is really interesting. The Requiem is just a nice little story about someone finally, Moses finally getting into the promised land, essentially. This is about Moses not getting into the promised land and the struggles and the, and the, and the, the, the 40 years in the desert kind of thing. Uh, for our main character. Um, and there's so much interesting things to to dig into with this story. So let's get started. Our main character uh, is Delos D. Harriman. Um, and he is a fascinating guy, actually. So he's he's a capitalist. He's the, a robber baron, essentially. That's how he's presented in the story. And he has kind of always wanted to go to the moon, uh, but he's... Uh, been involved in other businesses most of his life. And he did like shipping and infrastructure for shipping and things like that. So it makes sense that he's the kind of guy who would go into the go to the moon. He was, he was basically like a, a railway tycoon kind of character. Um, and he's accumulated a huge amount of wealth, a lot of connections. 
a lot of reputation and prestige, and he cashes that all in to invest in this moon expedition. Now, the th one thing I think I want to come out and say what I think is one of the most fascinating things about this book is, I don't want to say it's Marxist, but his view of money here, Heinlein, the way he deals with money, is very Marxist in, in some ways. And I think it's inadvertent, but it's worth mentioning. First of all, the fact that we have uh, like a capitalist who's kind of, a system's kind of reached the peak of its expansion, right? Our hero here, Harriman, there's not much more he can do on Earth, right? So there's like almost an economic motivation to go there. It's like overproduction, overaccumulation, capital needs to expand, capital needs to go to the next place. Maybe it's a more of a Leninist argument about uh, capitalism and imperialism, but there is that, that sense that all this money is just sitting around and there's really no more way to invest it anymore. We've kind of reached the limit of, of infrastructure we can do on Earth, so the only place to go is out into space and, and go off into, into the stars. And so if you put this in the future history stories, and some of the juveniles fit into that too, this is like the first stage of that. So this is before the Green Hills of Earth. This is before all of that stuff happens. Um, is it even before Revolt to 2100? I don't think, I don't know if we get a date here. Maybe it's in Requiem, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but it's early in the future history timeline. So he's, uh, Earth has kind of reached its limits, and so humanity must go off to the stars, but it needs this kind of revolutionary person with the capital to kind of make that real. And I, I think that fits in kind of a Marxist view of, of, of broad historical change and how capital works. It, capital invests until it accumulates as much as it can in a certain industry or territory, and then it expands. And if it can't expand anymore, it either has to, it either implodes or reinvents itself, right? And maybe that's one thing Marx didn't predict very clearly is how capitalism would reinvent itself many, many times in its history. But he was certainly aware that it would have to at times because, you know, expansion has its natural limits. Basically, when you reach the monopoly capital stage, then imperialism is the logical result. Now, none of this is in the text. This is just me kind of injects, in, injecting it into it. But, like, it could have been in the text. I mean, it's like, I'm sure this is not what Heinlein intended, but Heinlein is coming at it from this kind of American capitalist point of view. So, you know, to the degree Marx explains American capitalism, which I think it does he does pretty well, um, that tradition also can, like, contextualize this novel in a way. So that's my justification for kind of going at it this way. But the other thing that's fascinating in it when you read this is just how money is, and this is something also Marx said, how, you know, the melt solid and everything solid melts into the airline, I think is where this comes from. Um, it's just that money itself is alchemy. It can turn into anything. And just the way Harriman uses money, he just, I mean, part of it's because he's like, amazingly wealthy he's he's like the richest man on the planet kind of guy he's like the you know like a trillionaire essentially like he's got he's got infinite cash reserves right his businesses don't necessarily have that same flexibility and are constrained by other you know limits but he himself is an unlimited cash machine because he's just got more than he could ever possibly spend his only constraint is like his his wife who's 
he's kind of breaking up with, uh, his business partners who are a little more cagey in how they use their money. Harriman himself, he's just like, all this, I'm all, I'm all in on this. Um, and then, therefore, his money is all at work, and it turns into whatever he needs. If he needs an engineer, he can just buy one. If that engineer needs a, a hotel room, he can instantly prepare it. Uh, anything he needs, he can create. Any tech. I mean, he often says in the, in the, it's in the text itself, he would say things like, uh, we don't have this technology yet? Well, you invent it for me. Those kinds of things. Or we don't have this yet? Well, you, that doesn't matter. We don't, we don't need to worry about that because that money can solve that problem. The idea that, that money can just be invested anywhere and to solve particular problems is such an interesting way of looking at the capitalist, right? Because I think we still live in this world, maybe. I think the shine is coming off largely, but there are still people who see the entrepreneur as, as some kind of innovator. And he's not. He's just the guy who can move money to, to certain places, to, to the actual innovators, the actual scientists. And, you know, Harriman is kind of a dummy in the sense of, of the science of all, the, all this. He just has the cash to send to um, the different investors. Now, going to the moon doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, even, I think, at Heinlein's time, you know, there was the work was being done on how to get to the moon using um, stage rockets, which is ultimately how we got to the moon, right, with stage rockets. And I think our, it's still what we basically use for all space exploration. Um, I think we're maybe innovating away from stage rockets. But I'm not the one to ask about that. Um, ultimately, it's going to be like from space stations, right, that we're going to uh, launch in the, in the future, I would guess. But uh, anyways, uh, that's the main technology. And, but the problem is fuel is scarce. So this is kind of before even like rocket ship Galileo level of tech. Um, if you remember, like he's, he's got like these stages. He talks about this in, um, what's the one, Farmer in the Sky, I think, where you have a, the, the stage rockets followed by the nuclear rockets of so rocket ship Galileo, the nuclear-powered fuel, and then you have uh, essentially mass drivers uh, talked about here, but then I think there's a fourth, and that's the, the mass conversion stuff. Now, we're, wet, we're not even close to mass conversion here, but basically what Harriman wants to do is move from the stage rockets because there's the nuclear fuel's kind of been run out because there's been a space station explosion. So he's saying, well, we can use mass drivers to basically to a, a giant slingshot to propel a ship to the moon. Um, now, they don't quite get that tech right away. Um, and the, the way it's described here in the, you know, the work that goes into it, Harriman's approach is just like, that's a technical problem. You fix it. Here's infinite money. <laughs> Uh, but in reality, you know, they're not quite able to do it in time. So they have to go back to a stage rocket, which means they can only send one guy to the moon. And that's all an interesting subplot because Harriman's dreams are shattered by the, by the technological limitations. But 99% of the time here, like money solves every problem that Harriman runs into. And I just think that's a wonderful window into how capitalism functions in our world. Um, where that's, you know, that's money does have this magical capacity to um, just create something like that you need, right? And, and for all of us at a smaller scale, it has that, right? The money in my pocket become a lunch or become a car ride or they're interchangeable, right? But if you have an infinite supply of it, 
you can set it to solve pretty much any problem if you have people smart enough and the technology is there. So, um, so uh, that's one aspect of it. And, and I think it's just, for me, it really pulled me into the story quite well. Um, just this character of Harriman as a, a will backed by money. Um, now, other interesting aspects that are in this story have to do with like the legal aspects because he's always surrounded by lawyers. And it's the same thing with the lawyers. It's like, oh, you, you create that contract that's unbreakable. You get me rights to the moon. You know, it, again, it's just a money problem. It's just who do you bribe? Um, it's like that line in the Fall of the House of Usher TV series with, uh, where Roderick Usher talks about getting the actual gems that were in like, like an Egyptian mummy. And it's just like, you just have to bribe enough people, right? It's just, it's just a matter of, of where the money goes. If you're that rich, the money itself isn't the question. So uh, anyway, moving on from that topic, I'll try not to jump back to it. But uh, another issue here is just the legal um, question of rights. Who owns rights? There's a scene early on where he asks the people around him who don't believe in his mission, to, and they, they sell their interest in the moon. I don't know how they have an interest in the moon. It's just like a fantasy. But of course, all stock essentially is kind of a, a fiction of ownership of something, right? Um, ultimately, you know, ownership is in the hands of whoever has the most of it, right? So if you have like a share in Disney or something, that's that's kind of a fantasy. It, it, it may give you a dividend or something, but um, when you're talking about investment in a speculative, it, you know, project is even more so, right? When you're talking about like venture capital, that's kind of what this is, is venture capital. Uh, so Harriman kind of jokes with them, like, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it, your interest in the one for 50 cents. And he does. And he ends up buying the, uh, everyone's at the table's interest. And this is just a sign that he's all in to the moon. But the question is, who actually owns the moon? He asked this question. Seriously, who owns the moon? And the question is like, well, we know who owns what's under the earth is the person who owns the land. Like your rights go down as a wedge to the center of the earth. So if there's a diamond near the center of the center of the earth that's under your land, you kind of have a right to it if you can get down there and get it. Um, so that's a legal right. But does that project up? And Harriman realizes, yes, it does. Right. There are rights to, to do this. And we see, for instance, in court cases where people have to like ask for the right to fly over people's property. I don't know how that works out in the modern world or even if that's true, but that's what we get here. So if, an, uh, you know, if something exists over us, we have that right. So that would project to the moon if the moon is over us. And it's not. Where it's over is like, like tropical countries because of the orbit of the moon or something. So he basically has to bribe these countries into giving him the right to that. So he's trying to get the rights to own the moon. That's where like the title comes from, of course, is he basically gets the claim, the rights to claim the moon legally uh, for himself. Now, why is he doing this? Well, we find out pretty quickly into the novel that his, his, he's got a bigger ambition to, um, to make the moon independent. Um, and I think this is uh, something we've seen in a lot of Heinlein stories is the question of colonial sovereignty and self-governments. It comes up, obviously, in Between Planets. It's there in, um, uh, like, 
the moon is a harsh mistress, of course. It's there in the Ganymede story we just read, that the farmer in the sky. The question of like that the colonials should have self-government. Red Planet has it too, right? There was a rebellion against the corporate overlords, basically driven by capital from Earth. You know, tried to overthrow. They tried to. They successfully overthrow them in that story. So Heinlein definitely wants to see the colonies as independent parts of humanity, like independent nation states. Um, maybe a federation could exist. Maybe some kind of unity could exist. I think he's open-minded to that. But ultimately, ownership comes to the ones who are there, right? And that's what he wants. And I think he's asking himself, like, how can we establish that legally, the legal right to have Luna City ruled and owned by the people on the moon? And it, it means he first has to have the rights to it first and then basically grant that. Uh, he talks about getting them like a chart, UN charter. He talks about uh, basically starting with corporate leadership but then transferring that to the colonists themselves. It's, it's kind of like how the, the Mayflower, and I think here's a very clear metaphor of this, how the Mayflower, f f the, the, the pilgrims, not the pilgrims, the Puritans, sorry. The Puritans created the, the charter for the Massachusetts Bay Company in London, but the investors were on the boat and the charter was on the boat. So then when they went across to the Americas and sat up there, they weren't going to be controlled by London business interests, right? So Harriman, in a sense, is trying to do that with the moon. And, and you know, he succeeds, even though he never gets there himself. There is that aspect of it. Then there's the aspect of, like, finding, like, another way he tries to get at this is to get broad ownership of the moon through micro-investments, um, which I think is kind of fascinating from a like a modern kind of GoFundMe era where Harriman, he doesn't really need the money. He, he liquidates everything to, to pay for this. But he also, um, I think if, he does run into some money troubles down the, down the road, but I think they're more internal to the company than to his like, own pocketbook because yeah, he's rich enough that if you took away 99% of his money, it doesn't, wouldn't matter to his, to his life. But he, uh, he, for instance, gets children to donate uh, nickels. And if, if they collect enough nickels, they can get their name on, on, on the moon, like on a plaque. He does naming rights. He sells uh, merchandise. Uh, he even has a, a scheme where they're going to like take certain, um, like basically, souvenirs to the moon mission, bring them back. So you would have something that was on the moon. Um, he lies about diamonds on the moon to try to get investors to want to go, go there, even though this kind of puts, you know, disorder into the diamond market back on Earth. Because he also wants money from the diamond producers because he's like, if there's diamonds on the moon, you're out of business because there's an infinite number of diamonds up there. So you're going to want to invest in the moon to, like, prevent the those moon diamonds from coming onto the market. So he tricks people. He kind of strong arms people. He lies to them. He does everything he can to collect the money to do this. But I think this has the effect of creating a broader ownership in the moon. So the moon is not going to be simply his property. That's why it's he sells the moon. He doesn't own it. The moon is something that's everyone's. It's kind of like that Let There Be Light short story he wrote very early on where the idea was... Uh, you had an energy source that was independent of the big corporations. So the guy takes out a patent on it, 
to protect the technology, but he also at the same simultaneously grants universal rights to it to everyone. So everyone can have it. It can't be something that can just be bought up by a corporation to hide that technology. And I think Harriman is 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 basically a good guy here in his effort to try to whatever it takes, get lunar autonomy. Now, he does a lot of bad things on the way. He certainly lies all the time. There's a whole scheme with the diamond things where he fakes that diamonds were brought back from the moon to spread the rumor that there's diamonds up there because he wants investors. It's He does really bad things, but his overall motive, and his motive is, is personal in many ways. He wants to go to the moon himself, but he's he's got a bigger vision here, which is kind of a, tra- and his vision isn't just profit. And, and I think there's something attractive to us. And I think it's, it must be attractive to Americans in the 1950s coming off of the Great Depression, who still remember c- capitalism as an evil that caused great suffering and something that had to be struggled against to create a, create a economy that's more democratic more participatory, but it, it's it's also the age where capital is like retrenched, but people are so skeptical of it. So you create an image of yourself. Uh, there's a book about this called Creating the Corporate Soul. The idea is like the, the, the soul of capitalism. It had to be advertised and had to be promoted uh, because people in the Great Depression saw it as an evil or, or greater numbers of it were skeptical of companies. Um, and Harriman is kind of in that project of being, yeah, the brutal capitalist, but his overall vision is redeeming all that evil. So I, I think that hits most of the main themes I, I, I want to um, talk about. Now, the focus of Heinlein is on this Moses thing. It's literally like the last line of the story is... He looks as Moses must have looked when he gazed out over the promised land. Um, And why is that? Well, he wants to go to the moon. His first difficulty comes when they can't build like the mass drivers to get the the catapult things to get the the ship to the moon. So they have to use a stage um, rocket. But that means the weight and all that means that only one person can go and that person must be a... uh, must be a pilot. So that's this guy, LaCroix. He goes to the moon, so he's the first to get to the moon. So it shows it can be done. And this is basically a desperate ploy to get more investors at this point because, you know, investors are starting to get skittish about the whole project. Um, And then Harriman says, well, now that we know to do this, we got enough investment to build the, the, the mass driver device. Um, which is like, it's really cool, the description of it. I, I like to see like a picture of this, how someone could imagine this. It's, it's basically like, it, it's like a, like a um, almost like a roller coaster going down a whole mountain to pick up speed and then zips up, uh, catapults up. It's, it's kind of cool. Now, I don't know what mass drivers would really, the technology behind them, but I know it's, a, it's one of the more serious science fiction conventions, right? Weapons are mass drivers. Uh, you know, mass drivers are used for the conce- conceiving of like interstellar flight um, or interplanetary flight. So it's a, it's a real thing, and I think there's research behind this. It's 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 not that speculative. We just don't have the tech for it now. Um, 
But why can't Ivanchuk go? Well, basically, he's he's kind of overplayed his his investment in a way. Well, he got so much inve- so many investors and so much outside kind of capital for this endeavor. He he basically kind of lost control of it. Um, so he kind of overly he he overplayed his hand in getting investors. He always was, was really stressed keeping control of the company, so no one could con, you know control it. But he gets betrayed by some of the other members of the majority owner faction that he thought he, he was secure in, and they say, "No, we can't afford you. If you die, it ruins the company. We we need you if this is going to be valuable." And they basically block him from going to the moon. Uh, during the the mission to establish the lunar city, the lunar colony that he dreamed of. So he can't go. Now, we as readers know, of course, that um, uh, that Requiem happens, and he eventually does get to the moon and dies there, and and his dream is fulfilled. So there is a happy ending to this. Now, I think when this was published, I don't know if it was published with Requiem in it, I think it was just published as a novella, but there was later on a short story collection that has like Let There Be Light, The Roads Must Roll, and Requiem in them. I, I don't know if the original publication had Requiem on it, in it. It would have been nice, but I don't, I'm guessing not. I think it was just published as a standalone novella. Um, but either way, I think they go well together, but you don't really need it. I, in some ways, maybe Requiem takes away some of the heart of the story because Harriman's defeat at the end is quite touching. Um, you, you do feel it. You feel his frustration. There's one point where he's like, like, like basically, you have to take the moon out of my cold, dead hands. Like, I'll, you know, a, a very dramatic moment. If it was on screen, it would be amazing to watch if you had the right actor doing it, where he's just like, like hell itself can't stop me from going to the moon. And then he's like, well, actually, this clause and this contract, and we have majority rights, and we, we can do what we want. And and he gets defeated by his own kind of games. There is kind of a like a little bit of a, a, a monkey's paw kind of issue with his with his wish to go to the moon. He he kind of the means by getting to the moon for him are the same leads to his defeat. So it is it is his fault in a way. But you know that's the best tragedy, right? When when it is your own sins or arrogance that that lead to your downfall in that sense requiem might take away a little bit from it um but i think they go well together it's fine it's fine um really good story um i really had a lot of fun with this um so i think i think that's enough i think you get my feelings about this i do recommend reading this one uh, this is not a skippable Heinlein novel. I, and I think at this point, maybe there's not many that are skippable, uh, works that are skippable. Maybe some of the short stories, like the next short story, maybe you don't have to read. Uh, but I think when we're getting to the longer length stuff, I think everything has an important, is an important brick in the, in the Heinlein kind of structure of his, of his worldview. Um, but we'll, we'll see about that. Um, as we read systematically the rest of, of what Heinlein wrote. Um, so next up will be, uh, what's it called again? Um, 
Oh, it's called Cliff and the Calories. Um, now, if you read the introduction to this that he provided in his Expanded Universe book, this is one of the stories that got dumped in the Expanded Universe uh, anthology, which is a lot of non-science fiction stories got dumped in here. Um, also some like maybe less significant science fiction tales. But this is where we saw things like uh, uh, No Bands Playing, No Flags Flying, Free Men, They Do It With Mirrors, Blow Ups Happen, which is a good future history story. Um, but Cliff and the Calories is uh, not a very well-known Highline story, I think. But in his introduction to it, he does connect it to um, Potcane, um, which, of course, is his his answer to, like, why do you only write stories for boys? Can't you write stories for girls? Um, and he says, well, I guess I can. And he writes this story, which is about a girl trying to lose weight and then coming to terms with that. I won't have much to say about it. It'll be, I'm sure, a short episode. But it is interesting that he seems to see this character as a predecessor to Podkane, which I've never read Podkane of Mars, but I know she's like a she's a successful answer to that question, why don't you ever write girls? That he he kind of proves he can, and, and that hyper-competent young man that we see in all the juveniles, that, that he does have a similar character for um, a girl. Now, that he just kind of says, well, they're all potcane in his introduction here. That's a little problematic maybe, but... In a sense, the boys are all interchangeable too. I mean, you can read all the juvenile like here's the you know, like read the juveniles and then tell me about the difference between each of these boys. Like, oh, that one was a boy scout. That one was kind of a more of an engineer type. But they're basically all just hyper competent young men who have like dreams of space. I mean, that's that's all of them. Now they have their differences, and and I'm sure there's people out there, Heinlein experts who could. Uh, say the difference between like Don Murphy and and say I already forgot the name of the the kid in um in like Space Cadet, um, so it's like they they don't stick into into your head, uh, so they are sort of interchangeable too. So if they all just had one name, I think yeah, I, I it would make my life easier, I suppose. So, anyways, that's uh, that's kind of my make an excuse for Heinlein's uh, weird uh, admission that this character in the story about losing weight is Podking. Anyways, we'll talk about that next time. That's for the next episode. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you then.